from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. With the month of February wrapping up, it's time for another news roundup episode. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in to our last three weeks of guest documentaries created by community service learning students at the University of Alberta. We learned lots about community gardens, farmers markets, and urban beekeeping. And now it's time to catch up on some of the environmental news headlines you may have missed over the past month. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwitsiwiskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. February is Black History Month, and while we should be celebrating and uplifting Black histories, futures, and excellence every day, if you haven't had a chance this month to do some self-education and reflection on Black history and achievement in your area, this is your reminder. The University of British Columbia's Indian Residential School History and Dialogue Centre has a webpage that provides examples of solidarity and connections between Black and Indigenous peoples and communities, resources on complex histories and intersections, and aims to uplift Black and Indigenous voices and stories. We will link to the webpage in the show notes for this episode. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you're on. This week, we're catching you up on all of the environmental news headlines you might have missed over the past month. For our first story, I've got the lowdown on something called green steel. This next news story takes place in Hamilton, Ontario which is also affectionately known as Steeltown. The city of Hamilton has a long industrial history centered on steel that dates back to the 1890s. The key components of steel are coal, iron, and limestone. With expansive quantities of limestone available from the Niagara Escarpment, the Hamilton waterfront was an ideal location for steel production. Today, the single biggest industrial emitter in Ontario is ArcelorMittal Dofasco, a steel plant in Hamilton. In attempts to meet Ontario's climate change targets, the provincial government has set its sights on the steel industry. Doug Ford's government has partnered with the Government of Canada and Dofasco to reduce emissions from Ontario's steel industry. Last year, the Government of Canada announced a $400 million contribution to convert DeFasco's coal-fired blast furnaces to electric-powered systems. This means that DeFasco will keep making steel, but by 2028, it will be what they're calling green steel. 
This project anticipates to cut DeFasco's greenhouse gas emissions by two-thirds. This month, the Ontario government announced an additional investment of $500 million to the same project, meaning that DeFasco's plan to transition to green steel has a $1.8 billion price tag. This announcement has been well-received by Hamiltonians. In this blue-collar city, green steel holds the promise of job security. It also hints towards a greener future with cleaner air. Local air quality is expected to improve drastically, as the pollutants from burning coal will no longer originate from Hamilton's waterfront. Now, we have a couple of headlines about wildlife. First, here's Jacinta Royangeza covering wolf calls in British Columbia. On January 27th, the BC government made the decision to extend a controversial wolf call program in the province after a two-year delay. A spokesperson for the Ministry of Forests, Land, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development confirmed a five-year renewal of the Aerial Wolf Reduction Program for use in the Kootenai, Caribou, Amanika, Skeena and Peace regions. The program, which sees wolves tracked and shot from low-flying helicopters, was first introduced in 2015 in an effort to reduce predation risk on endangered caribou herds. Since its inception, over 1,400 wolves have been killed in the name of woodland caribou protection. That's not to say the program doesn't face considerable opposition from wolf experts and environmental groups. The BC government has touted its aerial wolf reduction program as the most humane method to support caribou recovery through predator reduction efforts. BC's SPCA, however, points out that while a gunshot to the head is recognized as a method for wild animal euthanasia by the American Veterinary Medical Association, accurate targeting from large distances is difficult. This method may result in various jaw fractures or other types of non-fatal injuries which cause prolonged suffering to wolves. In a recent email to the CBC, the ministry also claimed their approach is based on the best science available and sound wildlife management principles. But a number of studies written in the last two years challenged that rationale. In a 2020 study, scientists from Rain Coast Conservation Foundation, as well as the universities of Alberta, British Columbia, and Victoria, suggested that lethal wolf control had no statistical support as a conservation measure for endangered mountain caribou. Furthermore, a 2021 study funded by the British Columbia Oil and Gas Research and Innovation Society suggested that establishing wolf moguls, or obstructions to human-made changes to landscapes that wolves then use to threaten caribou herds, would more effectively mitigate interaction between caribou and wolves than aerial wolf call methods. Opposition from the general public is notable too. In late 2021, the BC government conducted a survey of over 15,000 BC residents to gauge their support on the province's predator reduction strategy. 59% of respondents were against predator reduction for caribou recovery. The survey also revealed that the top three caribou recovery methods favored by respondents were habitat protection, habitat restoration, and habitat management. The responses underscored the need for more action by the BC government. 
No amount of wolf killing will protect the caribou if the government is unwilling to substantively regulate industrial and recreational land use and protect intact old-growth forests. In the absence of material policies targeting ongoing habitat loss, the march towards extinction for at-risk species like the caribou is inevitable. Thanks, Jacinta. Next up, here's Sarah Chitzas reporting on invasive wild pigs in Saskatchewan. Wild invasive pigs are oinking their way across Western Canada. This may sound like a funny story, but unfortunately, wild pigs, sometimes called feral pigs, really have been taking over much of the Canadian prairies. Wild pigs are known to damage crops, damage native pasture land, damage personal property, bird habitats and eggs, and harm humans, as well as generally disrupting ecosystems. According to a CBC article, the issue of invasive pigs began in the 1970s, when wild boars were brought to Canada as domestic livestock. Over time, more and more of these pigs have escaped. Wild pigs reproduce very quickly, having an average litter of six piglets every six months, and they can grow up to be around 600 pounds. Unfortunately, we have not had a consistent, effective program to prevent the spread of these pigs, and in the last decade, we have seen an exponential increase in the number of wild pigs in Canada. Ryan Brook from the Canadian Wild Pig Research Project, which is based out of the University of Saskatchewan, is a key researcher on the topic of wild pigs in Canada. Using data from a collar tracking system, reporting, and trail cameras, Brooke's research team has recorded about 60,000 occurrences of wild pigs across Canada. Now, some of these occurrences may be reports of the same pig crossing multiple trail cameras, but this number is alarming even so. And although a majority of these occurrences have been in Saskatchewan, There have now been reports of wild pigs spreading as far as BC and Ontario. Wild pigs also made news this past fall when they were reported in Elk Island National Park near Edmonton. This was the first time this invasive species was seen in any of Canada's national parks, raising concerns about the damage they may do to protected ecosystems and native species in our parks. Managing invasive species like wild pigs can be an exceptional challenge. In an attempt to curb the wild pig population, the provincial wildlife regulations in Saskatchewan were changed in 2016 so hunters no longer need a license to hunt feral wild boars year-round. However, as reported by the Saskatchewan Crop Insurance Corporation, hunting wild pigs does not actually make a significant impact in reducing their population, but rather can cause groups of the pigs to split up and spread out further, making it even more challenging to track them. Wild pigs can also learn how to avoid hunters in this way. According to the Saskatchewan Crop Insurance Corporation, the most effective way to control the population of these invasive wild pigs is for wildlife professionals to track and eliminate entire sounders, which is what the groups of pigs are called. According to Ryan Brook in an article released by the University of Saskatchewan, the ideal method of containment for wild pigs includes baiting them, trapping them, and strategically removing them using helicopters, although helicopters tend to be expensive. A big challenge we face in the fight against wild pigs right now is that we don't even know the extent of wild pig populations in Canada. 
This has been Sarah Chitzas for Terra Informa. Oink, oink. <laughs>
the provincial government has finalized an expansion of the Kitsikino Nuinewe Wildland Park. This expansion includes over 150,000 hectares of boreal forest, wetlands, and critical habitat for species like caribou and wood bison. The total size of the park is 310,000 hectares. The park was originally created in 2019, and the name Kitsikino Nuinewe means our land in Cree and Dene. Mikasu Cree First Nation have been leaders on this expansion since 2016, identifying the area for conservation and working collaboratively with other stakeholders to get the protection this area needs. According to the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, or CPAWS, during the public consultation of the expansion plan last year, there was a noticeable hole in the expansion that belonged to Burgess Canadian Resources, an oil sands leaseholder. Due to the collaborative approach of this expansion, in the end, the company volunteered to give up their lease in the area. The Kitsikino borders Wood Buffalo National Park. Extra protection around this national park is important, as the ecological health of Wood Buffalo is in a state of concern, and its deteriorating condition has resulted in its title as a UNESCO World Heritage Site being potentially compromised. According to the World Heritage Committee, the state of Wood Buffalo National Park could constitute its title being changed to that of World Heritage Site in Danger, mostly due to outside influences such as upstream oil and gas development. In Saskatchewan, the Métis community of Isle Lacrosse is exploring the idea of creating an Indigenous Protected and Conserved Area, or IPCA, which could be the first IPCA in the province. The IPCA would be called the Saketuak Conservation Area Project, and would protect an area known as the N14 Fur Block, an area of 22,000 square kilometres. This area includes boreal forest and wetlands, and provides habitat for woodland caribou, moose, bears, and breeding grounds for osprey and great blue herons. The meaning of the Saketuak Conservation Area Project is to, quote, protect habitats of vulnerable species by promoting sustainable development practices, advance Indigenous ways of life, identify knowledge systems, and implement stewardship activities, end quote. Vulnerable species in the area include woodland caribou, moose, old-growth pine, migratory birds, and various species of fish. The team behind the Saketuak project has identified many traditionally used plants in the area and identified over 100 trap lines that are still in use. Concern for this area and the want for protection stems from industrial activity taking place close by. Logging companies have 20-year leases in the surrounding area, leases that, according to an article by the Narwhal, were granted without community consultation by the provincial government. The government of Saskatchewan must approve the plan for the proposed IPCA due to the federal government handing over control for almost all crown lands to the province in the 1930 Natural Resources Transfer Act. However, according to an article by the Narwhal, the community of Isle Lacrosse is having a difficult time engaging in dialogue with the provincial government. We will keep an eye on this story as it progresses. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CGSR 88.5 FM. This week, 
we're catching you up on the environmental news headlines that you may have missed over the past month. Next up, Elizabeth Dowdell takes us to South America to talk about record deforestation rates in the Amazon. On February 11th, multiple news organizations reported on record high levels of deforestation discovered this January inside the Brazilian borders of the Amazon rainforest. The news may, or more likely may not, come as a shock after the Brazilian president joined over 100 other countries at COP26 last fall in pledging to stop and reverse deforestation by 2030. This latest update on deforestation levels comes from the Brazilian National Institute for Space Exploration, INPE. Based on satellite imagery, the data shows 430 square kilometers of deforestation just for the month of January. This is the highest level of deforestation for January since monitoring began in 2015. The 430 square kilometers wiped out of existence this month tops the previous record set just last year by times five. That's five times more deforestation this January compared to last January. So this is bad news. But it gets worse. January deforestation is a big deal in Brazil because January is usually a rainy month. It is wet and soggy and hard to work, so deforestation slows down, normally. While the deforestation rate is high for January, it's less than half of what we expect during the peak season from June to September. Last year, overall deforestation records were also set thanks to this peak season. In response to the record-setting observations, the Brazilian government suggested the data could be wrong, and deforestation measured in January is really an aggregate of November-December-January that was hidden by cloud cover. A fact check with Inpay shows cloud cover in December was only 11% higher than in January, suggesting this is a weak explanation. The Environment Ministry also criticized the value of comparing one month to another because that's such a small picture. Fair. If you look at deforestation from the period of August 2021 to January 2022, the ministry says, you'll see that overall it was slightly lower than the previous year. Okay, so that's good, but the Environment Ministry also says the government is working more aggressively to stop environmental crimes in 2022. Uh-huh. The same government also says a lot of contradictory things about the need for the Amazon to be exploited and used for mining and commercial agriculture. The Environment Ministry didn't say this. But the Bolsonaro government in Brazil has routinely been characterized as pro-industry and anti-environmental by critics within and outside of the country. Many environmental protections have been weakened since Bolsonaro took office in 2019. Much of the current deforestation in the Amazon is due to illegal land grabs for commodity farming, driven by strong demand from global supply chains. Go soybeans and cattle ranches! Some environmentalists suggest the government has encouraged these criminal acts through a bill soon to become law that would essentially forgive and legitimize these illegal occupations and any damage they may have caused to the forest. The law would also convert what was once publicly protected 
biodiverse rainforest land into private property, ready to buy and sell for whatever a speculator's heart desires. To sum up the vibe of this deforestation news, one environmental modeling researcher in Brazil, Bertaldo Suarez Fiel, put it, quote, people might be surprised that it didn't increase even more, end quote. This has been Elizabeth Dowdell, reporting for Tara Informa. Thanks, Elizabeth. For our final headline, Lizzie Barron covers the Alberta government's unwillingness to talk about contaminated sites in the province. On February 16, 2022, the Narwhal released an article written by Drew Anderson entitled Internal Emails Reveal Alberta Government's Unwillingness to Talk About Contaminated Sites, which documents the Narwhal's struggle to ascertain an accurate number of the number of uncontaminated sites throughout the province. The story starts off with Jason Penner, communications advisor with Alberta Environment and Parks, who then wrote, as quoted in the article to Tom McMillan, who was then the assistant director of communications at the Environment Ministry. The top line numbers are that Alberta has approximately 8,000 contaminated sites, not including oil and gas, and approximately 5,000 of those are from gas stations, end quote, which the Narwhal was able to obtain that email via freedom of information requests pertaining to the Narwhal's seeking of information. So as the Narwhal explains, quote, under Alberta's freedom of information legislation, government officials are required to turn over records to anyone who pays a $25 fee, unless they have a valid reason to refuse. So the Narwhal's FOIP request, FOIP standing for Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy, was to see all the correspondence about the Narwhal's media inquiries about the contaminated sites in the province. This was because they weren't getting answers after repeated questions to the government, so they decided to FOIP use the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act to get the correspondence the government was having internally about their media requests. Really interesting way to do it. So this revealed that the Narwhal's media request was considered and potentially escalated to determine how much detail to share and how to frame a response about these contaminated sites and how many exist with the press and consequently the public. Using FOIP was, again, a really interesting way to get around how the provincial government attempted to dissuade the narwhal from reporting on the pressing story of the contaminated sites. Rather than specifically re-asking about the contaminated sites, as they weren't really getting anywhere with that angle, they asked for, quote, correspondence pertaining to the narwhal's media inquiries about the number of contaminated sites in the province, end quote. There was even confusion about the original number of contaminated sites sites itself, as the government informed the Narwhal that the information was listed on the accessible to the public database called the Environmental Site Assessment Repository, noting that the public database is in the midst of an update, according to government. Via the Narwhal's reporting, the week of February 14th had over 4,700 petroleum tank sites listed and over 7,700 total sites. However, just because a site is listed on the repository does not mean that it is contaminated. The Narwhal continued pressing for particularly the number of contaminated sites and were linked to the database, which did not clarify or list actual contamination status. 
Further complicating discerning the real number of contaminated sites in Alberta is that this database is largely based on companies self-reporting to the province after they and their sites are assessed voluntarily, certainly calling into question how reliable its numbers are and how many contaminated sites there truly are that citizens are not made aware of. Beyond the ambiguity on the number of contaminated sites, there also is seemingly confusion about the definition of contaminated and what is required to clean up a contaminated site, which then can lead to compounding of noxious chemicals without action, which the Narwhal elucidated in their interview with Marlon Schmidt, who is the NDP's critic on the environment. The story is still certainly developing. On February 23, 2022, the Narwhal released another article, this time entitled, When the Alberta Government Ghosts You, written by Arik Legetti, further explaining that the ambiguity around the number of contaminated sites in the province, including the correspondence on the matter with the provincial government. Thanks, Lizzie. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you to everyone who helped out with the stories this week. If you like what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for past episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.